Okay, well, we're picking it up in Genesis chapter 41 today. Last time we left Joseph in prison, uh, the prison of Potiphar. He had a lot of responsibility, including two prisoners that Pharaoh had sent there. One was the chief baker, the other one was the cupbearer, and these people were placed directly under his care. And these two men, at the same night, had dreams, and they were disturbing to them. And Joseph sees them and sees their long faces and inquires of them, what's the issue here? And they go, well, we had these dreams and were disturbed and were unsettled, but no one can interpret. We lack an interpreter or understanding. And so Joseph gives him a testimony. He says, interpretation belongs to God. And so he said, tell me your dreams. And so he is there on behalf of God and uh, he, he is, uh, that God is the source of truth, the source of sovereign direction, and he, in, out of that, gives Joseph the information. The cupbearer sees a vine with three branches and plump grapes on it, and he squeezes the grapes into the cup and gives it to Pharaoh. And uh, so Joseph interprets that dream for him and says, well, the three branches are three days. And three days from now, you're going to be restored to your former position. And that was a good position. And as the baker listened to this and heard the positive interpretation, he says, well, now I had a dream too. And so <clears throat> the baker's dream about three baskets of fine breads and things that were fit for the king uh, were on his head. And out of the baskets, the birds began to eat. And Joseph says, well, like the three branches the three baskets are three days but his fate wasn't nearly as nice uh, and three days from now you'll be taken out of this prison and you'll be hanged but that's the birds eating to find bread so Joseph interprets these dreams and he he tells particularly the cupbearer now I have this one thing to ask I'm not your I shouldn't be here I haven't done anything to get me to Egypt I haven't done anything to be in this dungeon and so please remember me when you are restored in your position. And sure enough, the men um, see the dreams fulfilled just the way Joseph interpreted them, one to be hanged and the other one to be restored to his position as cupbearer. And uh, unfortunately, he forgets about Joseph. And so that's where we pick it up today in chapter 41 of Genesis. Uh, Thinking about today, it was a little bit challenging and still is a little challenging in my mind on how this needs to all fit together in our time slot and everything, but we're going to break this up in sections today. We'll see how that goes and see what we, where we wind up. My goal would be, and you know, we, we teach these stories in a Sunday school class for youngsters in, I say stories, these accounts, these events, uh, you know, in a Sunday morning that wouldn't be a problem, uh, but... There's a few things I want to get to here, so we'll see how this works and make it fit today, and we may have to carry some of 41 on to next week. I don't know. But let's begin with <clears throat> the first 13 verses. <clears throat> so if someone would be able to read those first 13 verses for us, I would appreciate that volunteer to do so. Chapter 41 of Genesis. <clears throat> yeah, after, two, four, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. They fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker, me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. 
And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was thanked. Yeah, so <clears throat> two full years, according to the scriptures, um, have gone by since Joseph did the interpretation in the dungeon, and Pharaoh now has a turn at a dream. Uh, and in his dream, he's standing by the Nile. And the Nile is a pretty big deal in Egypt. Um, we, we know that. It's their food source in many cases. It provides for uh, irrigation for the crops. Uh, it's there, it, particularly at this time, but even yet today, it's a huge part of their travel. Uh, and also, it had quite a little bit of religious significance. Um, and so, uh, you can even think of for a moment, and we should remember, who is this book written to? in its original readers uh, would have been the Jews as they're moving into the promised land area. And so they can picture a lot of what's going on here. They know the significance of the Nile. They even had seen plagues that affected the Nile. It was turned to blood for a period of time. Moses himself found his refuge in the, in the waters of the Nile as he was uh, rescued from that, from Pharaoh's daughter. He was in a little floating crib, I guess is a good thing to call it. And so here, here is this, this river, and Pharaoh is next to that, and so it's a significant place of all of Egypt, and he sees in his dream being there, and out of the Nile come seven cows. And these cows are sleek, they are fat, they are prize winners. Uh, and they're grazing in the marshy grasses around the Nile. And in verse 3 it says, Now seven other cows came up, and they are ugly, gaunt, look like they've been starving to death. And they stood by these other cows. And then the bad cows ate up the good cows. Um, not a lot of detail on what that looked like in the dream, but uh, that's certainly only going to happen in a dream. And it says that they weren't affected by this. Here they were taking in, in this dream, the, the good cows into themselves, but they stayed bad cows. They were still gaunt and ugly. And Pharaoh wakes up. And uh, I'm sure you've had some of these kinds of experiences with dreams, not dreams that mean things like these do, not God-given dreams, but I've had dreams and I wake up and go, oh my goodness. And... Uh, it, can, it can wake you up. And so in verse 5, he goes back to sleep, and he again dreams. And this time, the dream consists of seven ears of grain on a single stalk, plump and good. Now, I did a, tried to do a little bit of research. My experience with growing corn primarily was at my grandfather's direction, cutting the weeds out of them. So I paid more attention to weeds than I did the actual corn stalks. But uh, not having been directly involved with growing corn, uh, I wanted to make sure that I didn't overstate something. But modern corn stalks in today's world produce generally one to two ears, according to what I read. I can't remember two on everything I saw. A lot of times the second one comes later and when there are two, the second one often doesn't have the quantity of grain that the first one does. I'm sure as they have worked with the hybrids, they keep improving on all that. But more ears do occasionally happen, but seven's quite a number. And so this would have been abnormal, and they're plump, they're full, and they're just really lush corn. And then you have uh, seven ears sprout onto the stock. Now these are ears that are scorched by the east wind and just really not much to them. They're shriveled up, no good or little good. And it talked about this east wind, and so I'm thinking, well, winds, eastern winds are not normal, but what's the significance of east wind? And in that area, when you have a wind from the east, it's coming in off of the Arab lands, that are very much dry desert lands, and so it's very dry air, it's usually very hot, and so it really does a good job scorching when it happens. So these seven ears sprout out that are of little quality, and the seven thin ears swallow up the plump ears, and Pharaoh wakes up again from his dreams. And 
in the morning he was troubled in his spirit. He doesn't know what to make of these dreams. Now, we've all heard the interpretation many times in our lives, so we know what's coming. But he called for all the magicians in Egypt and its wise men. The magicians uh, were the ones that possessed the occult knowledge. They would have been the religious gurus that would be the ones that would be calling up spirits and doing things to project into the future and trying to make sense out of life. Um, and so they were the diviners of the day. And then he called in the wise men. These would be the ones that were learned, the shrewd men. Some of those probably were directly advisors to him and would provide that kind of input to help him make decisions and direct his pathways. But no one could interpret the dream. And someone asked the question, it probably has some very obvious answers, but why couldn't they interpret the dream? Wasn't meant to be. And that's a very good answer in many respects. I mean, we could say some things that are true here very easily that we know, because we know what's going on in this account, who gave the dream to Pharaoh. God did. It's got a purpose. And in God's purposes, uh, he's not going to reveal to anybody else but Joseph the meaning of these dreams. I mean, these dreams are central to what God is doing with regard to his plans for Joseph. Uh, and beyond that, of course, these men are just just people out guessing at how life's going to be and involved with the dark side of the world and certainly not followers of God himself. But in the middle of all this, in verse 9, the chief cupbearer speaks up. And he speaks directly to Pharaoh, which would not be uncommon for the cupbearer. They usually were close to the king. And he says... Um, I'm remembering my own offenses. There was some risk here in him bringing this up. I mean, this was not, a, not an easy moment, but here's Pharaoh, and he wants his dreams interpreted, and it's not working out, and he's unsettled, Pharaoh is. And so he goes, I remember when my own offenses, and in verse 10 he says, the king, or Pharaoh, was furious with his servants, and I was one of the ones you were furious with. And I, along with the chief baker, found ourselves in the prison of the chief bodyguard. So this is, he's referring to Potiphar's own prison that he used. And so there, along with the chief baker, he says, we had a dream on the same night. And we, they were our own separate dreams with their own interpretations. And in verse 12, he says, there was a young Hebrew there with us he was a servant of the captain of the bodyguard which was true in two ways right he came into potiphar's house bought as a slave as a servant became crosswise with potiphar over his wife's advances toward him and found himself in prison but it still was there and he was still serving potiphar but just now as a prisoner in the quote dungeon and um, we told him our dreams and he interpreted our dreams each individually and he gives some good testimony about how that worked out just as he said meaning um, Joseph his interpretation happened he restored me in my office but he hanged him meaning the baker and when we look at those words in, at least in the New American Standard English I say he restored him and he hanged the other one. I kind of wonder and still do in some respects, what he is he talking about? Um, I don't think he's giving God credit. I don't know if he thinks Joseph has some influence over the future by being the interpreter of the dream. Is he talking about Joseph? Or correctly, maybe, as well as what God saw too, but is he talking about uh, Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's the one that actually physically restored the cupbearer and had the baker hanged, and, and I'm, I'm not really completely <coughs> sure. But um, so here we are, and he gives, he's given this account, and he said, here's what happened, and Joseph was 100% correct, 
and he gives that information to Pharaoh. And so now let's take a look at Genesis 41 through 37. So I'm going to look for another person to read for us. Did I skip a bunch? What did I say? My dyslexic brain, I guess. No, Genesis 14, 41, 14 through 37. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and grazed in the marsh grass. While seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for such ugliness in all of the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream, behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, for the repeat, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, Pharaoh, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all the servants. All right, so Pharaoh listens to the cupbearer, and so he's um, disturbed, he's frustrated, and he calls for Joseph. And the people around him, we don't know who was responsible, who did what, but with haste, they went to get Joseph out of prison and bring him to Pharaoh. Now, it's not going to do to bring somebody into Pharaoh's presence that doesn't look like they should be in Pharaoh's presence. And so Joseph gets shaved, uh, which is an interesting thing, and I won't deviate very far with this, but I've thought in many years when reading something about somebody shaved his head or shaved what their implements of shaving were, but uh, that's neither here nor there. They obviously weren't, uh, weren't quite able to do that. And uh, so that he shaved, he changes his clothes, he gets prepared to come into Pharaoh's presence, and indeed that's where he's brought. And Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 15, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. I brought in all the magicians and they weren't able to do it. And I've heard when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph sets a great example. How tempting it would be in the presence of Pharaoh 
for anyone to say, yeah, I've done it before. No, he didn't. God did it. He made it clear. And he makes it clear again. It's not in me. It's not something I possess. It's not that I can do this. But God, Elohim here, mighty God, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And I don't know what Joseph exactly means by that. Is he expecting that there's going to be something that Pharaoh is going to like? Or is it going to be that it's just simply going to be accurate? Because in Joseph's previous experience with interpreting on behalf of God a couple of dreams, not both guys were thrilled with the answer, I wouldn't think. But this is where, where Joseph goes. And so in verses 17 through 21, Pharaoh tells Joseph again the dream from being on the bank of the Nile, the seven cows that were showstoppers, and seven more that were dugs, duds. As a matter of fact, in this account, he I don't know if you want to say embellishes it, but gives a little more um, opinion about those ugly cows. They're the absolute ugliest cows, uglier than anyone ever has seen cows in Egypt. So they were bad cows. And he talks about how the bad cows consume the great ones. And even afterwards, they're still the ugliest cows you can imagine. And then in verses 22 through 24, we get the part of the dream about the ears of corn, the seven good plump ears on one stalk. And then we get these seven dried up uh, ears that have been dried out by the east winds. They're scorched. And they sprout after them, and these ears swallowed the seven good ears. And he said again, I told the magicians, but no one could explain it to me. And so we get to Joseph giving the interpretation that he gets from God. And in verse 25, Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams are one and the same. So he already starts out by saying, you've got two different kinds of dreams here, but they're both there to tell you the same thing. And God, then, he says, has told Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. And so here's another testimony about God and God's role in all of this from Joseph. And he explains that the seven good cows and seven good ears are about seven years each. Both are talking about a seven-year period, and so the dreams have the same meaning when you get done. And then the seven lean and ugly cows that followed are seven years, and the seven scorched ears are those same seven years and will be years of famine. In verse 28, he says, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. So he's, he's affirming it, but he's tying up his reputation with it. This is the way it is. And he says, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. So at this point, we understand that these years he's talking about are imminent. They're coming. And he says, behold, look, you're going to have seven years of great abundance that comes to all of Egypt. And after that, in verse 30, you're going to have seven years of famine that will come. And that will be such a bad famine, you're going to forget about the years of abundance. It, that famine is going to be devastating. It's going to be taking over life in Egypt. It's going to be so severe. Egypt will be ravaged by a famine. And then in verse 31, uh, he says the abundance will be forgotten because the famine that follows it will be that severe. It's not just a famine, but a super famine. In verse 32, and he says, as for the dream occurring twice, it's not just an accident. It's not just a repeat. It's intentional. It has meaning, and that is that this is an action that God has determined absolutely will happen and the repetition also says it's going to happen quickly, so it's here. And then Joseph in verse 33 goes beyond the interpretation. And this is pretty bold, if you think about it for a minute. All that Pharaoh asked for was, tell me what's coming. Now Joseph slips over into giving direction or advice or suggestion, something along those lines, to Pharaoh. Uh, he gives him wise counsel. He says, now... Let Pharaoh look for a man who is discerning and wise and set him over Egypt. And he goes on, let Pharaoh appoint overseers to be in charge of the land. And he's very specific. Exact a one-fifth portion or 20% of the portion of Egypt's produce during the seven years of abundance. And gather all that food together 
the food of these good years that are coming, store up the grain in the cities that are under your control, and then let these servants guard it. So he's got a plan of let's gather while we can gather and save for the years that we won't be able to produce. Let the food become a reserve, in verse 36, for the seven years of famine which will occur in Egypt, so the land won't perish. In other words, if you ignore what's happening and just feast off of the seven years when you have the, of plenty, when you get to the seven years of famine, it's going to not go well. You will die. Many will die. The nation itself might not succeed and, and move forward after that point. In verse 37, it says, Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and all his servants. And so Pharaoh not only got an interpretation of his dream, but Pharaoh got some excellent advice on how to weather the storm that is coming in the second seven years by planning well and doing the right wise things during the years that he has the plenty. So let's now read the rest of the chapter, beginning in Genesis 41, read 38 through 49. Who can do that for us? And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we, find a, can we find a man like this to whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took this singet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee, <clears throat> thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanatha, I don't know. And he gave him a marriage, gave him in marriage a Zenith and daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh in <coughs> Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all of the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. Eight, and I'm going to stop you there. I misspoke. I didn't want to go clear to the end. So, so Pharaoh there uh, is looking at his servants and, and speaks to the servant population in general. Can we find a man like this who is full of a divine spirit? And uh, when we see that, um, I think we could easily not get a piece of it and that is that Pharaoh here is not thinking about the Holy Spirit he's thinking about some he's got a divine spirit and in other words he has a connection with the divine and I don't know maybe Pharaoh understood when Joseph was talking and called God the name Elohim that he was talking about the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and maybe he just thought he was talking about one of the gods I don't know what Pharaoh understood but clearly he understood this. Joseph had within him the direction of God. He saw what Elohim was doing and said, there is something in this person that doesn't exist in anybody else. So he's seeing Joseph in that position, in that blessedness of God, where his spirit as his, is at work. And so when he looks at that, he then says to Joseph, since God, God told you all this, or because God told you all this, there is no one else as discerning and wise as you are. It's clear from what has happened, you have something that we would find in no one else. And so in verse 40, he says, you're going to be over my house. And that means more than just his home. That means his house in the sense of 
leadership of the whole country and everything will be at your command. All my people will do you homage, which means to show respect, to acknowledge him and to give him authority. And he says, only in the throne will I be greater than you. Meaning Pharaoh wasn't giving up his position as Pharaoh, but in essence, he was delegating everything else to Joseph, where Joseph would take care of everything surrounding the authority of Pharaoh and running the country. And he goes ahead to do the things that would be seen as both symbolic and effective for Joseph to be in that position. He took off his signet ring. That was the ring he would use that was a symbol of his power, probably used to seal documents and so on. It said this is with the power of Pharaoh, and he took that off and placed it on Joseph's hand. So now Joseph... It has this symbol of authority, and he's there to act on Pharaoh's behalf with anything he chose to take charge over. And they placed garments of fine linen on him and put a gold necklace around his neck. Uh, also, again, symbols of authority and power. Uh, fine garments weren't everywhere. They were um, a prized possession. And, of course, the gold necklace really was important in terms of value but also his symbol of authority and so he's receiving both wealth and symbols of his position at the same time and then in verse 43 he had him ride in his second chariot <clears throat> the chariots were the best way of moving around and pharaoh had his special chariot where he would go first and then officials behind him would follow and here's joseph in the second one showing that he is just second to Pharaoh, um, kind of like Air Force Two, I guess. Uh, but they had people and servants would proclaim before him, bow the knee. So as Joseph is going around following Pharaoh or on his own, um, it was the custom and the expectation for someone that important that they would be shown that kind of honor. In verse 44, it goes on, he says, moreover, in other words, in addition, eclipsing everything we've said so far, he said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh. And he, he's not giving up the throne. He's saying, I'm, I'm the top man. And yet, even though I'm in charge of it all, nothing's going to be done. It will require your permission to raise a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. He gave him complete authority. And so everything was going to happen at Joseph's direction, the, delega the delegation of authority was full and complete. And so imagine this day, if you can for a moment, <clears throat> being Joseph and how the day started. Where were you? In prison, unshaven, and apparently in shoddy clothes. And by the end of the day, he's second only to Pharaoh and is honored and respected and given all this authority and seen as a man of wisdom and of insight based on the fact that Elohim is within him and blessing him that he is now in charge of all of these things with all of this authority and all of this wealth. And Pharaoh goes on to give him Asenath, Asenath the daughter of Potiphar. Uh, who was the priest of On, or On, as his wife. Now this uh, priest of On, uh, On was uh, one of the four top cities in Egypt at the time. And um, it also, Heliopolis, there's an I in there I'm having trouble getting. Heliopolis, I'm not sure. But was another name for it. Uh, it, but it was the city of the sun god. And the sun god was the big god in Egypt, or one of the ones they worshipped very highly. And so he received the daughter of this priest as his wife. And so that too probably gave him standing within many people, just because he was now married into the powerful people in Egypt. And it says that Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Verse 46 says, Joseph was 30 
when all of this happened and this encounter with Pharaoh occurred. Um, let's go over to Genesis 37.2 and read that. Genesis 37.2. Who's got that for us? So this is kind of the beginning of our understanding of Joseph's story, not his birth, but as he's moving into his interaction with the family, this, this is where um, Moses starts with telling the story of Joseph, and he's 17. And it begins this time of strife with his brothers. He comes back with a bad report of how his brothers are handling their responsibilities with the flock. And so just 13 years ago, he was at home, the brother that was the tattletale, the one that was the special one, the one with the coat of many colors, and so shortly after that, they plot when they see him coming to check on them to uh, do him in. It ends up with him here in Egypt. So about 13 years have gone by since we were introduced to Joseph as a near adult, and so a lot of that time has been spent with him <clears throat> in Egypt as a slave. And so that's what has happened with Joseph over those 17 years. Um, we've got some things that we want to look at, but let's go ahead and read uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 50 through 57. And then we'll go back and take a look at this uh, with a little bit broader perspective. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Anasseth, the daughter of Potipharia, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all the father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made, him, made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all, the, all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. There, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So the fam when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So <clears throat> what we see here at the rest of this chapter is the account of how things led up to Joseph being in charge of the storehouses during the period of famine, which when we get into the next chapter, we're going to see his family coming to Egypt because they're starving and that's the only place they can go to find food. <clears throat> but going back to verse 50, before the famine comes, he has two sons. And uh, they're sons of Asenath, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. That gets said multiple times, so it's pretty clear that um, social standing was, was a big part of what uh, Moses was making clear to us. In verse 51, Joseph named the first Manasseh, which means forgetful. And what he's quoted here as saying is kind of interesting because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He bunches those two together. Now, he doesn't trash his father or anything like that, but it's very clear that what he remembers about the household wasn't pleasant. And so the unpleasant things, the time of trouble being in Egypt, 
being sold into slavery and all of that. He says, I've, I've forgotten it because of what's happened, and I've forgotten also what it was like to be in my father's house. The second came, he named him Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he says, God's made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so um, the seven years of plenty passed by, and in verse 54, we get to the seven years of famine, just as he had predicted, and all of the lands are, are affected by it. Uh, now, Egypt, though, has bread, meaning they have food. And so the Egyptians, in verse 55, are in hunger, and they cry out to Pharaoh for food, bread. And Pharaoh says, hey, I put that in Joseph's hands. You go to Joseph, whatever he says, do it. And <clears throat> so they do. And as the famine spread all over the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and he sold to the Egyptians and they needed that because of the severity of the famine and then the famine continues throughout the whole earth and so they come to buy grain from Joseph. He maintains his dominion over those storehouses because the famine is severe everywhere. <clears throat> now, any questions or comments? This is not a new story to us. You've heard the story. If you've grown up in a church environment at all, you've heard before the account of what happened with Joseph and his dream interpretation and being before Pharaoh and how well it worked out. Questions, comments? So we have an opportunity here. And um, I've, I've heard people in for illustrative purposes talk about God's sovereignty and the, 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 the wonderful, um, if you were to equate that use as a metaphor, a, a, a giant wonderful tapestry, how you can look at the tapestry on the front and as it's finished and developed, you can see the beauty in it and, and, and the artistic work and all that. But if you look on the back, there's a lot of threads and things that go various places. And we have an opportunity here to stop and think about and maybe look at some verses in ways that we might not have fully looked at them before as we look at God and his sovereignty and how he puts things together. Uh, when we think about Joseph's story uh, and Joseph's rise to prominence in Egypt and all the things that God had to put together, did God work at a very fine detail? I mean, yeah, this, this isn't just a big picture that God makes happen, but he makes this big picture come together in very significant, in, in events that you might think were smaller but have extreme significance. In that, when we look at just what happened with Joseph, um, Joseph's status in the family, even the dreams God gives him about what's to come, create tension in the family. The tension in the family, uh, certainly we were not going to call what the brothers did anything near good or righteous, but God even uses that. He uses the travelers that were uh, from the house of Esau headed to Egypt to sell and trade. They're there to pick up Joseph. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house and in a setting where there's a predatory woman, if that's a fair way of saying it, I'm not sure the best words to use, but certainly a, a woman who has designs on Joseph, and he uses that interaction to find himself in the jail. And if you were to back up even further, we don't have any idea what the cupbearer did or what the chief baker did to get themselves crosswise with Pharaoh but we need all of these things to come together and here are these two men thrown in prison by Pharaoh and then God gives them a dream and Joseph interprets the dream and from Joseph's perspective as he's walking through all this we talked about this last time this isn't all working out so wonderful I mean he's in a dungeon and in slavery in a land that he said, I, don't, I haven't done anything to get myself here. So he's not seeing this as a positive set of events, is it? And yet, here he is there, and the many details that had to come together 
for him to, t to tell some dream, to, to interpret some dreams through the power of God, and two years later, have the cupbearer right there to say, well, I hate to bring up my own troubles with you, Pharaoh, but during that time of trouble, let me tell you what happened with some dreams. And then in this very short period of about a day, Joseph is transformed into the second most powerful man in Egypt. And God used all those things and put all those things together in a way that if you were to ask Joseph up until that day, how's it going? I don't know what you would have received because I think he did walk with God and God was with him. And so there were a lot of things going well. And I don't know what Joseph would have said. I can't pretend to get in his head and know where he was positive and where he was negative. Was he bitter? Was he just thankful that God was still with him in this ugly place? I don't know. The only hint we get about his thoughts is the one where he says, Hey, Mr. Cupbearer, when you get out, don't forget where you got all this good information and help me out here. That's the only time we really hear from Joseph in, a, in, in any kind of words that indicate he wasn't thrilled with the way everything was going. But I want to take you over now to some very familiar verses. And I want to start with Romans 8, 28, and 29. Romans 8, 28, and 29. And when I first went to this passage, you're going to know it instantly if you don't already know it. When I first said, you know, we need to talk about this verse in the context of Joseph's experience, I was just going to do 28. But as I looked at that, I said, no, you can't do that. You've got to look at 29 as well because it all fits together. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Somebody read those two verses for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also pre pre predestined. predestined to be um, conformed to the he also also pre oh I brought it um to be conformed to the to the image of his son is order that he might be image of the son of of thy um I already read the firstborn of the many brothers. Yeah, and I meant thirty as well. You okay. can either read there or I can, sure. whatever you want. Um and those whom he prepared protested he also called And those whom he called, he, he also justified. And those who, whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay. And I would say the, these verses are well known by many, particularly 28. And we look at verse 28 and it can give us really good feelings. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so if we're of the called, those that are born again into Jesus Christ, 
we can look at these verses and start to say, well, we know all things work together for good, and we can say, well, okay, some of this unpleasantness, everything's going to end well or be good. And we can move ourselves over into um, the way that television movies work, where television and movies worked in the 50s and 60s. I know, I just dated myself a lot. But you know, you, you knew watching this movie that before it was done, the good guy's going to win and the relationships are all going to be wonderful and anything that was sad is going to be dealt with, right? You knew that when you walked out of the theater or turned off the TV, oh, I'm glad it all worked out that way. Well, that's really not what these verses are teaching us. Ultimately, if you say I'm going to say the end of the movie is seen when the new heaven and the new earth are established and we're all in the kingdom together, you could say it that way. But we tend to want to apply this to our earthly experiences. And we could say that, well, in Joseph's case, didn't it work out that way? Well, in a way it did. But when we look at the whole scriptural story, the whole account of God in the Old Testament shepherding his people through to the coming of Christ, and then when you look at the New Testament and God shepherding his people through the time that the church is founded, and we've been marching through that time now since since the apostles founded it, it hasn't all worked out fine in this earthly environment, has it? People have been oppressed. People have been killed. Um, many injustices have been done. Uh, Jesus made it clear they hated me, so what could you expect? You can expect them to hate you if you're my followers. In our lifetime, it's not going to all come out wonderful. And then when we say all things that God causes, all things to work together for good, we get a bigger picture when we look at the book of Genesis. And the bigger picture is after the flood, God establishes his people, weak and small as though they may be, as the descendants of Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham don't do everything wonderfully, do they? We get to see their ugly side and see that God chose them and works through even the ugly side of people. And aren't you and I fortunate that that's the way it works? And God is putting together events and timing and so on so that his purposes will be met. And his purposes are for the redemption of mankind to the point he says to Abraham, and we can see it now that we know Christ, that that's what he's pointing toward is reconciliation through Jesus. He says all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. So even as God is putting together the events to bring Joseph into power in Egypt, the end of the story is not Joseph in power in Egypt. The end of the story is these are part of the series of events that God is putting together to weave that tapestry. Even when ugly things are done by ugly people, I don't talk about physical ugliness, I'm talking about the blackness of their heart and the murderous intent at times and whatever, even as those things are occurring, God is marching all of history under his control toward the first coming of Christ and continues to march all things together, all these events toward the second coming of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth. If we look back and think about just the series of events that brought Joseph into power, there's a lot that's not said here that we could look at. Would any cupbearer do? Maybe. But God chose a particular man to be born to a particular family to grow up to be a cupbearer to Pharaoh. What did these guys do that got them crosswise with Pharaoh? We don't know. But God needed, planned for, I don't know if he needed, but he determined that that cupbearer and that baker were going to be in prison with Joseph. And then the chain of events to get Joseph in prison. All of these things 
are orchestrated by God. Look at that. Back to Romans 8 for a minute. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. The path toward being conformed to the image of his Son also included their path in life to become acquainted with his Son, to be converted, to be chosen as one of the called, so that the Son would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. He missed none. And those whom he called, he justified, missing none. And those whom he justified, he glorified, missing none. And so here is God looking at every person in the world, their life history before it happens, and orchestrating the events of their life history and the life history of everybody and everything around them so that all of these people will be in the right place at the right time so that God can see his purposes fulfilled in the way that he desires to restore the called to himself. And if you think I'm exaggerating, turn over to Ephesians 1, verse 3. I think it's verse 3. I didn't write this down. Um... Well, let's read 3 and 4. I'll just go ahead and read those. We're getting a little short on time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then it goes on in love. He predestined us to adoption and if you don't quit somewhere, because Paul never finds a period, I don't know where to quit. But that's the point I wanted to make, is that our names, if we are the called ones, were, we were chosen in him when? Before there was a world. And I've said that a lot of times. It's one of my favorite verses. But if you think through that and think about all of the events of history, God had to choose, God did choose, I don't know if he had to, but God chose to orchestrate so that in this day, in this time, you would be one of his chosen ones because he picked you before there ever was an Adam. And he had the events of Joseph's life in mind before there was an Adam. And the level of detail that he had in mind was significant. Now we get tense when we see change coming in our lives. I don't care what the change is, there's some tension that goes with it. Now sometimes it's joyous tension. We hope it's joyous tension leading up to the wedding. We hope it's joyous tension as the child comes. But there's a whole lot of things that feel like they're out of our control, that we don't like it when they change. If we're happy with the culture that we live in, we're not very happy when it starts to change, are we? And yet, none of that gets out of the control of God. Romans 8 says, all things, God works together for the good, toward, toward the good end, for his called ones and for his purposes and his plans. And I can get spun up and anxious about change that I see happening in our day and time. But rightly, I feel like, well, I don't have any control over it. Anything I can do. And maybe there is something I can do. But even if there's nothing I can do, I need not be concerned. Because, look at Joseph. What did he have control over? Nothing. And yet, when the time was right, when God's plans fit, he was the second man over all of Egypt. None of us are going to be that prominent or important probably, and that's really not God's goal for us. Because he's got a better thing for us, and it's not a kingdom of this world, it's a kingdom of the next world. He talks about it in Hebrews 11 as people seeking a house not made with hands, but a house made by God. And that's our destiny and our future, and we may go through some really terrible times. So there's two things I wanted to see. I wanted to see how to take Romans 8, 38 and following and apply it to what we see happening in Joseph. 
but also take a little comfort in the fact that God's still in control, even if it's difficult. Questions, comments, thoughts? All right, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, I know that I have said things similar in the past, and it can be kind of a recurring theme, but the majesty that you show and the way that you order events, um, Lord, it's awesome. And we should be awed by it that you put even pretty small things, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, things that at the time appear to not have terribly importance or significance, that they're just minor, and yet, Lord, you put all those things together, even the things that bring heartache and anguish and pain, for your purpose is to be fulfilled, that good will come to the ones that you've called. Thank you for calling us out of the darkness. Thank you for putting us in your book before the foundation of the world. And Lord, help us to see your hand at work in the events of this time, even if we don't like them. It's in Jesus' name we pray.